Our brains are pretty amazing instruments, aren't they? We have great capacities for creativity, for understanding, for adapting. Sometimes our brains will be doing hard work without us even realizing it. All right, I've got an example. You can only see half of the words up there. Can you guys see that in the back there? But your brain is so amazing that you can fill it in, right? All right, tell me, what does that say? That's exactly wrong. Good try, though. Your brain went ahead and filled in what you thought that phrase was, didn't it? You jumped to the easy conclusion because you thought you knew the whole picture, right? The whole picture was a little different. Sometimes reading scripture is like that, and this is going to be one of those times. Um, I think 1 Corinthians chapter 11 It's easy for us to read it and to draw some conclusions that may not be there. It may be a little different than what we think. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, either in uh, your sermon outline or your Bibles. Start at uh, verse 2, read through 16. Now I commend you. Because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man." Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our paths. I pray that you would 
open and illuminate our minds that we may understand your word better and be conformed to it. Help us with this difficult passage this morning, Lord. And through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Okay, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians uh, starts a new section. At least that's how I see it. Uh, it's going to go through chapter 14. Uh, this is a section, its main uh, subject is about worship. I've, I've taught through 1 Corinthians actually several times with high school and college students and developed a little acronym for it. I think it's in your outline too. Uh, DIM4, not really a word, but it's just kind of helpful. And um, I don't know, I mean, probably, Philip, you probably remember this because some of the... No. <laughs> can't remember who was in that, but uh, somebody here probably remembers this, but uh, Eli, you were in there. Come on. All right, so we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, first four chapters. I mean, just very broad themes is the divisions within the church. And then five and six, Paul delves into the immorality that they were dealing with. Seven, talking about marriage. Eight through ten is freedom. We've been talking about the last few sermons, freedom to eat meat and the different things that that raises. Now we've got four chapters, including chapter 13, right? The love chapter that everybody knows. And that's the context of worship, uh, orderly worship. And then he's going to end the whole book with the resurrection, right? So we're shifting actually from where Paul was talking about how church members should exercise their rights and liberties in the world to talking about how they should exercise rights and liberties in the church and actually in, in corporate worship. Uh, before we get too far in this passage, can we just agree with Peter when he says in 2 Peter 3.16, he's talking about Paul's writing, that there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Yeah, I think this passage qualifies um, there are phrases that are really disputed, I mean, all over the place by how scholars understand them. I have no idea what that phrase about because of the angels means, and, and the Greek might be messenger, and there's, there's a lot of different ways to take those things. We're not going to use all those. Thank you, Pat, for saying the main thing, the main thing, so I don't have to feel like I have to answer everything. Um, you're going to answer those in your community groups <laughs> this week, so have fun with those. Um, but what you might have heard in this passage, in the same way that maybe you, you thought you saw ice cream is good, right? What you might have heard as we read through this, or if you've read through this before, is something like this. Men are in charge. Women are less than men. Men are closer to God or more godly or something. Women are shameful, need to look as humble and inoffensive as possible. I hope you didn't hear all that, but I can see. I can see how people read this and bristle with the wording. And before we get too far into the passage, too, I just want to, we need to kind of acknowledge the cultural moment that we're in, too. Um, this past year, you know, the hashtag MeToo 
that uh, is spreading awareness of the huge number of women who have been uh, sexually assaulted. And it seems like every day we hear about a new uh, man in a position of power, right? The Harvey Weinsteins, the Matt Lowers, the Larry Nassers, who, who abused that power to harass, assault, even rape women. And so it's a tragic reality that so many women have had to experience that. And I hope that those days where men got away with that easily are long gone. And there are other areas where women are fighting for equal pay and respect. And as Christians, we should join them and say that women should be respected and protected and treated with dignity and equality. So, in this kind of cultural moment that or where we are, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 can sound offensive and harmful, can't it? Uh, but as with many areas, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? We can't throw out all gender distinctions and how we honor God in them. So we need to study the foundational teachings laid out in Scripture so that we can build on them in wisdom. And so I want to isolate uh, verse 3 because I think that's the first foundation. It's, it's really the timeless principle that kind of frames the rest of this section. Um, and we're dealing with the divine order. So let's read verse 3 again. I want you to understand that the head of every man... Is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. We're actually going to take each of those backwards. Uh, we'll start over and over again when Jesus was alive. He told people that he was under God the Father's authority. Right? One example, John 12, 49. I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. The scriptures make clear that the three parts of the Trinity are equal. So while God the Father and God the Son are one, and neither of them is greater in God the Holy Spirit, uh, God the Son took a submissive role towards the Father when he was here on earth, right? That's the head of Christ is God. In the same way, a husband and a wife are equal as people. No man is greater than any woman. Everyone has equal standing and dignity as bearers of God's image. But in marriage, the husband is the federal head, the accountable leader. And just as Christ voluntarily submits to the Father, wives are to voluntarily submit to their husbands. Now that's always a fun part of my premarital counseling sessions. We go over Ephesians chapter 5 that talks about submission and you know husband and wives roles and uh, we spend some time I spend some time with a couple talking through what that means and then I kind of look them in the eye and say are you ready for this and I look at the man are you ready to lead and I look at the woman and say are you ready to 
let him lead and follow him. Because both of those things are hard, right? For a wife to follow a husband, to submit. And we talk about how that doesn't mean that he's always right and he always gets to make the decision, right? And that she has no voice. No, absolutely not what it talks about. But at least it needs to make sure that the husband needs to make sure that the hard conversations happen, that the decisions get made together because he's ultimately responsible before God for what happens to his family. Look, I'm in charge of my family. And Kath said I was allowed to say that. So, <laughs> don't joke. God's design is that God is that men would lead their wives and their families. Not in a domineering way, but in a sacrificial way. Back to that Ephesians 5 passage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You want to be in charge, husbands? Give up your life for your wife. Love her sacrificially as completely as you can. I think most wives would be happy to follow a husband who led them that way. Now, the, the first pair that we, we sort of working backwards here, look back at verse 3. The head of every man is Christ. Ephesians 1.22 says that God put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church. So Christ is the head of men and women, all members of the church. Christ is the head of. And church members submit to the leadership of the church as well. To the elders, the teaching and, and ruling elders. They are the under shepherds, loving and leading God's people underneath the authority of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. So God's divine order is that Jesus is the head of all Christians. And he asks men to lead in their families and in ordained positions in the church. So now that the foundational principle of divine order there is established, Paul starts to apply it. So first off, uh, just verses 4 and 5, and that's speaking about the worship services specifically. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors her head, his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So the first thing we need to realize is that Paul is talking about that corporate worship setting. All right, He's not talking about covering your head in private. Uh, it's directed towards maintaining decorum and order in public worship. Now, from what I understand from lots of reading, man, I had to read a bunch of commentaries and sermons on this passage this week. And here's how I would summarize why Paul says a woman, especially a wife, would need to cover her head if she was participating in worship. Um, and first off, the acknowledgement that women praying and prophesying in the worship service was a bit of a revolutionary thing itself. 
All right? And Jewish women were not permitted to even enter the temple or to speak in the synagogue. Greek women often had to ask permission to enter a room in which men were present. So if Paul and the early church were simply reflecting that culture, they would not have allowed women to speak. But he does say that women can pray and even speak forth, which is prophesy, the word of God, but to do it with order and respect. Now, there are limits elsewhere. Paul says that we do not allow women to teach men. So not that part of the service, but we have to start by noting that this was, this was kind of a radical new thing. This was radical inclusion. We would have called this progressive in that culture. And I think the problem, as we've seen throughout our study of Corinthians, was that they were abusing here their Christian liberty. The, the Corinthian women felt since they were free in Christ and they had this new opportunity to be part of uh, the worship service, that they were free to then shed the covering that was common in that culture. And Paul's concern was that nothing would disrupt worship. So he advised that the Corinthian women continue to cover their heads in public worship, much as he has advised them not to eat meat in public situations. Uh, a head covering essentially said that a woman honored the male leadership in her home and in the church when she wore it there. If a woman didn't wear a head covering, it would have said that she was rebelling against male leadership. Not wearing a head covering possibly meant that she was sending a signal that she was available to other men. Um, there was an association, I think, with bare heads, with shaven heads, as we'll see in later verses, uh, that it was probably associated with prostitutes, the temple priestesses. And Paul didn't want that association. He certainly didn't want outsiders coming in to the fellowship misunderstanding the signals that these women were sending. But listen to 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Paul gives very different advice. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. There it's interesting, he doesn't tell Timothy, he doesn't mention anything about the head coverings. Perhaps this was just a particular problem with the Corinthian women. Um, Paul's advice there is, is focused on modesty and how they dress. And again, in, in the worship context. Now, you've you got to deal with this fact that I think some churches still require head coverings. Is, is that what we should take from this? Um, this is, I think, a culturally bound thing. It just doesn't translate to today. People don't look at a head covering and have that association like they would have in this culture. Um, perhaps, I, I couldn't think of a whole lot of good parallels, but maybe uh, the wife taking the husband's last name 
would be the most appropriate way to signal that they were under the authority of their husband uh, today. Um, it's always dangerous to say that's so culturally bound that we don't have to really learn from it, right, in the Bible, because we end up easily picking and choosing things. And, of course, we're going to pick and choose the things we like, pick those, leave off. But I think that the modesty and respectable attire passage in 1 Timothy um, is, applies in a much greater way to today. Okay, so the next 11 verses, we're going to clump them together. It's a lot to work through. But Paul's going to reflect through this theological significance of hair length as well as marriage relationships. Let's see what we can learn from this section. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. When I was in high school, my parents and I had a battle over the length of my hair. I tried to grow it as long as I could. And every few months, all right, time to go get that chopped. I don't think they used this passage to uh, get me to the barber shop, but uh, they certainly thought it was not a very good look. Um, I cut it off pretty short before my senior year. I think it actually improved my dating prospects. I know Kath said she wouldn't have dated me back then. Good thing we didn't meet until college. Um, but here's the deal. I, I don't think Paul was walking around or encouraging the pastors there in Corinthians to walk around with a ruler and measure people's hairs, right? I don't think he was trying to get people to get just the right length here and there. I think hair, like clothing, is, is an area of Christian freedom where there are not legalistic rules, but as with all areas of Christian freedom, it's an area where you have to apply wisdom, and I do think that Paul is saying in verses 14 and 15 that our most, at, at our most natural, men have short hair and women have long hair. Certainly in that culture, long hair on a man was disgraceful, while a shaved head on a woman was equally disgraceful, often signified that she had a disreputable profession. Um, so what do we... Uh, 
woodenly apply that today and say that a woman can't cut her hair short? I don't think so. I don't, I, a lot of women cut their hair short after having a baby or a uh, stylish thing. My mom's always had pretty short hair. But I think what you're looking at is the heart attitude there. And if it's a rebellious, angry, and, and I think, really think he's going, looking at these women who have shaved their heads in protest or some, some reason. We don't know exactly, right? But, you know, think Sinead O'Connor, Britney Spears. I don't know. They're just angry. And, and that, that heart motive that is snubbing what a woman looks like. And Paul weaves in the fact that men and women are dependent on each other. I mean, that's woven throughout. It's sort of like he cuts back and forth between the hair and the status of men and women. And um, verses 11 and 12, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. He alludes twice to the fact that the first woman was made from the first Man, right? Adam and Eve. Eve's made from his rib, created as his helpmate. Both of them created to love one another, for him to lead and protect and to provide and for her to honor and help. And obviously, Paul draws attention to the fact that everyone, you know, women bear the babies, and so men are born from women, and so God has made us absolutely dependent on one another, and we need to live in harmony with each other to please him. I think an important guiding principle that Paul's driving at, he doesn't say it explicitly, is that men need to look and act like men. And women need to look and act like women. Now, I'm not talking about the stereotypes that we uh, sort of create, right? That men need to all be hunters and lifting weights and, you know, shooting guns and smoking cigars. And they can't do crafts and they can't do theater. You know, we're not talking about that kind of uh, masculinity. Um, I hope we're, we're beyond that. We're talking about real, true roles that the Lord gives us. And Paul is reflecting on the glory of God. There's something there about when a man is trying to look like a woman, or a woman is trying to look like a man, they are not reflecting the glory of God. To purposely confuse gender identity and try to act like a different uh, gender is essentially snubbing your nose at your creator and saying, you got it wrong. I'm going to act in my own truth, not in the truth that you've given me. Listen, if, if, if I was an old school preacher and this would be the place where I'd start ranting on uh, state of American culture, right? Because it sort of plays into it. America's going crazy. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner and the Transgender people are, are messing up our young people. And, uh, you know, feminism's taking over and emasculating the men. I mean, there's a lot of places we could go to just rail against the culture. And there's truth there, and there's, there's probably a time and place for that. But where I want to take us is I think the church 
needs to realize that it is called to first model that godly manhood and womanhood. Can we admonish one another to fulfill our God-given identities, to encourage the men to be strong, humble, sacrificial men, and the women to be strong, loving, encouraging women? We can show forth loving families and marriages that last over decades when we can love and respect each other and not be a place where we put down and take advantage of one another. But we cherish each other. We encourage each other as in brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe the world will hear us when we speak on these other issues. The world will respect us. Learn from our example. If you've thought about how you interact, I'm sure you have, with the world. But what would happen if a transgender or a sexually confused person walked in here? How would we handle that? Do we just send somebody over, some elder or deacon, to correct them and explain to them how they need to straighten out and start dressing correctly? And I hope not. I hope that they would be able to come into a meeting of God's people and not feel judged or feared or ridiculed. I hope we could just welcome them, put our arms around them and say, we're so glad that you're here. We hope you feel welcome, that you find this person, Jesus, who changed all of our lives. And we hope that you can hear his word that can guide you. And we want to walk next to you as we figure this stuff out together. That would be a beautiful picture. Because ultimately, none of us has it together, do we? None of us looks right, acts right. None of us gets our spiritual lives in order enough to please God in our natural state. Every one of you came to Jesus Christ with a lot of baggage. And it may not have been in that area. It may have been in all kinds of other areas. We were all hopelessly, desperately wicked. We please God by throwing ourselves at his mercy, clinging to the cross of Christ and saying, that is my only hope. I am a sinner, Lord, and I can't do anything to save myself. Thank you, Jesus, that you provided the way of salvation in your death and resurrection. And then we live as new creations in Christ, men and women who surrender our lives, to live out his calling inside and outside the church. And all God's people said, amen. Take a minute to pray, and I will close. Lord God, thank you for the book of 1 Corinthians. Thank you for its easy teachings, 
It's straightforward teachings. Thank you for its hard teachings. God, I know that these uh, words of Paul addressed situations that we don't know exactly. God, I pray that I have not misrepresented those this morning. But I pray that we would see your heart for your people, for all people, that men and women were made in your image and they were made to complement one another. God, thank you that you gave the model for a marriage that a man would take his wife and leave his family and cleave to her and that they would uh, bear children, that the man would lead in sacrificial love just as Christ loved the church and that a woman would follow and love her husband as the church follows Christ and loves him. So thank you that our marriages are a picture of that. God, thank you that our worship services declare your great salvation every week. And even if we don't exactly translate this passage, that uh, we would conduct our worship services with honor and reverence to you, that we would not flaunt uh, any cultural uh, things as the Corinthians were doing. But God, thank you that you love us. Um, no matter what our sins, no matter what our backgrounds are. Thank you for this passage. As we reflect more on it, Lord, it teach us. It teach us to love one another as a body and then send that love out to our neighbors, co-workers, people at school, anyone that walks through the door, these doors, may we model your love to them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.